Like Keanu Reeves and at least the first Matrix movie, MMA has aged like a fine wine or maybe a really strong cheese. In fact, I would argue that things are probably just about as good as they can be, when you consider how insane the level of competition is at the top all the way down to the early prelims. There's thriving promotions outside the UFC, mainstream acceptance for the most part, and mixed martial arts, which are the arts. Things are pretty good, and over the last 30 years, a lot has changed about the sport. Some things that will never go back to the way they were. It nauseates people. Uh, even hardened individuals uh, are repelled by this. Maybe that's a good thing in some cases, in most cases, honestly. Maybe you see it as a bad thing. But however you feel about it, today we're going to be talking about 10 aspects of fighting that have crossed the Rubicon. No turning back, no stuffing the genie into the bottle again. These entries had their time, and now the sport has moved on. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 things you'll never see in MMA again. Number 10. Fake Martial Arts Masters If Diego Sanchez's former coach and lifestyle guru Joshua Fabia hit the MMA scene in the late 90s or early 2000s, he might have been successful. He might have been able to convince a whole bunch of people that he was some kind of person you would actually want to go to for training in mixed martial arts. But that's not what happened. He emerged recently, and because he did, he was immediately called on his bullshit by virtually everyone but a single person. You guys are like the tough guys and all this stuff. If nobody's gonna know what the fuck you're talking about. The fact that Fabia's grift was so very quickly shut down by the majority of the community is a testament to how far we've come and how much wiser we are of these fake master types. Rafael Torre, with his fake unbeaten record getting dropped off in the woods to win secret Kumite events, getting invited to ADCC, he wouldn't be given the time of day today. I never said I was the only world champion. <laughs> How many fighters did we used to hear with insane records? 450 and 0, all entirely unconfirmed Valley Tudo events. Some were just bragging for status, some were straight up snake oil salesmen trying to scam others out of their money, and while that kind of thing still happens a lot in martial arts, if you're gonna try to pull that bullshit in MMA anymore, you're gonna get found out pretty fast. There's far too much knowledge about the sport now, and way too many ways to verify the truth to the point where a casual fan would be likely able to spot a fraud. The Frank Dukes types had their day in those early days, but MMA is way too big now for anyone to make it big off bullshit anymore. Come on, don't bullshit me. Number 9. Jiu-Jitsu's Domination Okay, so don't get me wrong here. Wow. I'm not saying that fighters who are primarily Jiu-Jitsu practitioners won't ever be champions again. I mean, after all, Charlie Olives is tearing it up right now. He's the submission king. But his top-tier winning didn't really start until he began putting together the other aspects of the sport. Same with a Gilbert Burns type. Both are now very dangerous on the feet as well, and that in turn has helped them better utilize that ability they have on the ground. And that's really the point of this entry. There will never be another Hoist Gracie type who is truly only a jiu-jitsu specialist that will dominate the sport ever again. Now, I wouldn't say that of something like Sambo or kickboxing. Israel Adesanya is a great example. About a purest striker as possible at the highest levels. And look at Habib. He could have absolutely dominated with his grappling alone. But the jiu-jitsu game is a different beast when it comes to solo running a skill to the top these days. Maybe it's because it was so dominant early on and so foreign to a lot of people that fighters massively overcorrected. Sure, maybe they're not black belts winning gold in Abu Dhabi, but even the greenest of big promotion fighters Fighters largely know the pitfalls to avoid against a jiu-jitsu ace. Which is not to say that they can avoid them entirely, it's still a huge and vital part of the sport. I simply mean they're not walking in blind anymore and saying, oh, I can just jump into this guy's guard and nothing bad is gonna happen to me. It's not that jiu-jitsu can't win fights. It's that in modern MMA, it can't be the only thing if you're gonna be a champion. Number 8. 
top talent needing the UFC. After the death of Pride in 2007, for about a decade or so, your only real big money option was the UFC if you wanted to be a top paid top tier talent. Unless you're, you know, Fedor. But he's the exception, not the norm. The goal was always the UFC. Sure, obviously there were great fighters in Strikeforce and elsewhere, but if you wanted to be the top dog and get that top dog money, you were hoping and praying that you were a star in the UFC. And while it's still very much a goal of the vast majority of fighters to have their time in the octagon, nowadays, if you're one of these stars, that might be more for the legacy than it has to be for the money. With major promotions like Bellator, One, and the PFL, if you're a big name from the UFC, you're not stuck there when it comes to money-making potential. Don't get me wrong, being the top guy in the UFC will always be your top money-making possibility, but because the promotion has grown so enormously in the last six years, if you're a big-time fighter who maybe isn't quite at the top of the food chain, but well-known enough to be a star elsewhere, you can comfortably leave the promotion and potentially make more cash than you did fighting for Dana, a change that's also a product of MMA's larger popularity globally. Hell, even the paydays Ben Askren and Tyron Woodley got for their boxing bouts shows how valuable being well-known as a UFC fighter can be. The Rumble Johnsons, Yoel Romero's, and Eddie Alvarez's of the world can find lucrative contracts outside the Endeavor umbrella for the first time in a long time. The days of top-tier talent not really having any choice are done. Number 7. Marketing the Violence In the early days, the violence was the thing. I stand by fight. I stand by fight. I mean, if we're being honest, it's still kind of a big part of the thing, but now it's all implied. In the beginning, the brutality of the sport was a big part of its drawing ability. Sure, martial arts enthusiasts wanted to see which style worked best against the other, but the masses wanted to see people getting hurt in a cage. And most of these fans loved it. It's real, and they're going at it, and it's men beating the crap out of men. One of the UFC's co-founding members, Campbell McLaren, made this idea one of the cruxes of the promotion's marketing campaign. You know those early shows that promised no rules, no time limits, no judges? That was his idea. He even said in an interview with the New York Times, death is cheap, maybe it's just $14.95. Which, I have to say, compared to today's product, that certainly is cheap. Pay-per-views are 70 bucks now, man. My God. Anyway, the glorification of violence in those early days is what sunk the sport into the dark ages and nearly destroyed it forever. When politicians came looking for bands across the U.S., that, that, that's the object is to maim, is it not, Ken? No, it's... No, it's not. By the time the sport had recovered in the early 2000s, attitudes had changed considerably. We wanted to be looked at as a sport like boxing. I think in the next five years, we're, we're going to be as big as boxing or... Uh, the WWF. And most promoters would do what they could to downplay the uglier aspects, not shove them into their marketing. Except the IFL. In 2007, they leaned so heavily into the violence as to put up a graphic during a show with a heart monitor flatlining while showing a fighter being stretchered out after a fight. Big yikes. But even back then, it was seen as an absolutely bad look for the sport, and promotions are even more conscious of it today. Why do you think the UFC changed knockout and submission of the night to performance of the night in 2014? They knew that celebrating knockouts wasn't gonna fly anymore. The sport would have never jumped the human cockfighting stigma of its early marketing and ended up on ESPN without collectively toning down the explicit bloodlust, and you'll never see that again. Number 6. A new art dominating. Mixed martial arts has been regularly practiced across the world for a good chunk of time now. If aspects of any discipline are truly effective in full combat sports, they've already been tried, refined, and implemented. Gone are the days of fighters showing up from obscure martial arts to prove their mettle, show that their way is the true way that can defeat all forms. Hell, MMA hasn't even been 
been that for a long time now. Those early UFC tournaments were certainly a true mixed bag, and of course, over the years, there have been plenty of clashes of styles, but by and large, the most dominant forms have already been fully tried by fire. For years now, the sport has honed the mixing of skills, taking the things that work from this art and that art, refining and tweaking what is effective when all other disciplines are considered. And sure, there's still innovation, forms evolve, like what Eddie Bravo did to the jiu-jitsu game, or the implementation of karate techniques by fighters like Lyoto Machida, but there's never going to be another UFC 1 scenario where somebody pops in with something nobody's ever seen and just completely dominates the sport. There's not suddenly going to be an Aikido-based UFC champion, where everyone is just powerless against him. I'm sorry, Sensei Seagal. Those days are long gone. If a martial art was going to dominate the MMA game, it already has, and there will never be anything entirely new. With the exception, of course, of Nate Diaz's sumo-style wrestling, that's a game-changer. It's called wrestling, sumo-style wrestling. Number five, promotion hopping. It's crazy to think that back in the day, a fighter could head over to Pride FC for a couple paydays right in the middle of a UFC run, maybe do a couple regional shows, but that was pretty much the norm. Right before he became welterweight champion by beating Matt Hughes, something that complicated the issue considerably, BJ Penn fought Takanori Gomi in K1, and it wasn't a big deal. Sean Shirk fought at UFC 30 in 2001. He was also on some regional cards, fought in King of the Cage, did a bout in Pancrase. That next March, he had another UFC fight. He did a regional show right before his UFC 42 title challenge. It's just how things were back in those days, and that's something that's never going to happen again. Exclusive contracts are now the standard, a standard set by the UFC, perhaps because of the situation with Penn I mentioned before, where he became champion and then suddenly jumped to K1, who was offering more money. Zufa locked down their talent. There was, of course, the Champions Clause, something that would extend a fighter's contract should they win. But provisions have also been made to allow for exclusive negotiation periods and even matching rights, should a fighter be let into the open market. And while Bellator and Ryzen have talent that interchange, keep in mind these are cross-promotional events. It's mutually beneficial to both parties. They're specifically working together. A fighter isn't of their own accord in the middle of their Bellator contract taking a fight independently over in Japan. It's just the industry standard now. And barring some sort of legal challenge, you'll never see a major promotion allowing that kind of hopping around ever again. Number 4. Prolific Top Talent In the span of a year from April 2004 to April 2005, Pride FC champion Fedor Emelianenko fought six times. Champ Vanderlei Silva, over 13 months, fought six times as well. That run culminated in a bout with heavyweight Mirko Krokop because the axe murderer gives no fucks. Matt Hughes fought nine times in 2001, the year he won the UFC welterweight title. When Frank Shamrock was the interim King of Pancrase champion in 1996, he fought seven times. In the span of a year, GSP lost his title to Matt Serra, defeated top contender Josh Koscheck, won an interim title against Matt Hughes, and then regained the unified championship from Matt Serra. The point I'm trying to make if it's not obvious is that top talent used to fight a whole bunch back in the day. It was kind of expected and the norm. Now, if you defend your title twice in a year even, you're considered to be a cut above the rest. Sure, guys like Cowboy and Kevin Holland are doing five fights a year, but one of those guys is on the come up and the other one on the tail end of his career. They're not the elite of the elite, and that's really where the difference lies, and it's something that's never going to change again. Top-tier talent is simply considered far more valuable today, there are more titles to headline more events, and the fighters are not about to risk running themselves into the ground just so they can make a bunch of dates in a year. If you're not quite there yet and you want to risk it, fighting a ton can still happen, but it's nearly impossible to do today at the top even if you wanted to, and that's going to be the norm from now on. Number 3. Early Fan Stereotypes Mixed martial art is for beer, beer drinkers. Boxing is for everybody. UFC are a bunch of skinhead white guys watching 
people in the ring who are also look like skinhead white guy. Well, 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 how the turntables. In the early 2000s, MMA fans were seen as maybe a bit of an unsavory bunch. Now, if you've been a longtime fan, you know that MMA fans have always been a wide spectrum of people. There's the martial arts enthusiasts that it drew in from all walks of life, the casual TV audience that came in from tough, and just plain regular folks too. Maybe you were a high school wrestler or checked it out because you were a boxing fan. And sure, yes, there was a phase there where there's a whole bunch of Ed Hardy affliction style tap out hate breed new metal Olympus get just bleed I train UFC types, but not everybody wanted to see the bodies hit the floor. And like all young sports, mixed martial arts has grown. Look at us now. Look at MMA. The audience covers a massive spectrum. MMA is now part of the sports culture, not seen as this seedy place with seedy fans. It's come a very long way. I mean, when you got Ronda Rousey on fucking Ellen DeGeneres talking about getting head kick KO'd, Jared Leto sitting in the front row wearing an orange bomber hat like he's about to go deer hunting, things have changed considerably. And the idea of what an MMA fan is has been blown wide open. With the public consciousness of the sport being what it is now, that era is dead forever. Number two, Dana White. However you feel about Dana White and his contributions to the sport, it's pretty hard to deny the fact that there's likely never going to be another him so long as MMA exists. White is a product of the times, as in he was born of the MMA's dark age, and as such, the over-the-top manner with which he helped revive the sport in the US has carried over into our modern world, a place that's changed a great deal. He might as well be John Spartan getting thought out after 36 years to help the people of San Angeles catch Simon Phoenix. He's a relic of an era that no longer exists, much like Bob Arum is to boxing, a figure that likely had a big influence on Dana. To the majority of fans, who have largely only been around since White's tenure as UFC president, he is the norm because to them he's always been there. But make no mistake, when he finally hangs up that all-black suit for the last time, the expectation of the next guy up is that he'll behave like a modern executive, not Dana White. The next promoter isn't going to be lifelong friends with the UFC's ownership. They're not going to build the sport together from the ground up. Scott Coker is a perfect example of what future promoters will behave like. He's still a salesman, but that brashness with which Dana handles pretty much everything, from fighter negotiations to replying to trolls on Instagram, that's going to be gone. The closest thing we could get is an Eddie Hearn type, but even he's pretty tame relative to Dana. Hell, White has toned it down over the years as the sport creeps into the mainstream. When Dana calls it quits, you'll never see another him again. Number one, underground status. MMA is never going to be accepted like football or baseball, but the idea that it's this underground movement that nobody understands and is almost taboo even, yeah, that's fucking gone forever. Like I mentioned, when Ronda Rousey's on Ellen and in movies, and Nate Diaz appears on Extra and Conan, we've reached a point far beyond underground status. It's funny to think when I started back in 2012, Ronda wasn't in the UFC yet, I'm not sure Connor was even born, and I remember thinking back then that the sport was pretty big. We made it. Brock was a huge star, the Ultimate Fighter was a game changer before him, but looking back at a decade ago from the lens of 2022, things have grown massively. Sure, we might not have been exactly underground anymore even at that point, but the accessibility and relative size of the community 10 years ago compared to today is staggering. If we weren't even underground anymore in 2012, we're damn sure not today, and that cat is out of the bag forever. There's no going back to a time where the MMA community was like Cheers, where everybody knows your name. Not saying it's for better or worse, but there's no denying that the Dark Ages are gone, and the knowledge of MMA's existence has permeated a good chunk of modern society. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description, and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page, at Ben Rosette. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.